Hello everyone, welcome to tonight's event. Those of you not familiar with us, the Forum for European Philosophy has been putting on philosophy events like this for the last 20 years. We get philosophers and other academics to talk about crucial issues in philosophy and uh, we invite the public to join in with our Thinking in Public project. All of our events are free to attend and that's thanks to the generosity of our donors and the support we get from the LSE for which we're very grateful. If you're interested in donating to us, please do, and you can find our, donate, our Just Giving donation page on our website. Uh, just a few housekeeping matters. If you wouldn't mind turning off the volume on your phone uh, so it uh, doesn't interfere with the talk, that would be fantastic. But don't feel you have to turn your phone off. Feel free to live tweet. We have our very own uh, hashtag, LSEFEP, um, so do feel free to uh, tweet along if you so wish. Um, and this has been recorded for a podcast, so if you're going to ask a question, could you wait for the roving mic to find you so that your voice gets picked up? That's it for me. I'll hand you over to our chair for tonight. Good evening. Um, my name is Bishma Chakrabarti. I'm an autism researcher, and uh, I'm delighted to be here. So thanks to Beth and uh, Tali for helping organize this event. And uh, I'm particularly delighted to welcome a very distinguished panel of speakers today. Um, on my right is uh, Simon Baron Cohen, who's a professor of developmental psychopathology at Cambridge. Uh, he will be presenting a neuroscientist's perspective on the thesis for this evening, which is Autism and My Minds Wired for Science. On my left is Professor John Dupre, who's professor of philosophy of science at Exeter and he would situate the debate within a philosophical framework, and we will end with uh, Dr. Bonnie Evans at Queen Mary um, University of London, where she is a Wellcome Trust Fellow looking at the history of autism. We will have very short pieces from each of these speakers, and then at the end of these short pieces, we will open up the floor for questions from the audience. Hopefully, at the end of the one and a half hours today, we will have a chance to exchange a lot of questions and ideas on this very novel idea. And I, with, without any further ado, I leave the stage to Simon. So, good evening, everyone. Um, it's a real pleasure to be back in LSE. Thank you, Bishma, for organizing and for the team for organizing this evening. Um, I'm going to be talking on this topic of autism and minds wired for science. And I thought I'd start just with some images of children with autism. Um, for me, they sum up a lot of what I'm going to be talking about. Um, we see here a boy playing with Lego, doing something very systematic, very logical, creating patterns, playing alone, which is part of the social disability, but nevertheless doing something intelligent. Here's another child, uh, again, a boy with autism, uh, and he's playing with water, and he's using his hands to break the flow of water so that he can see the patterns that are created. And here's uh, a last example of a, a boy with autism who's doing something that many of you will recognize uh, is uh, almost classic sign of autism, lining things up, but again in strict patterns. 
and children with autism uh, often uh, like to control the sequence of patterns that they're making and get very upset if somebody uh, disturbs them. So um, I think this idea that uh, people with autism love patterns, both children and adults love patterns, may give us a clue about the link between autism and scientists, because scientists also love patterns. Um, and this is a study that was published um, by Karen Pierce and colleagues at the University of San Diego in California. What they did was they took children at the earliest age that you could identify them uh, as having autism, children coming to their clinic, they were about two years old, and they presented them with either a face or a pattern, and they filmed them to see whether they looked for longer at one or the other. What they found was that if a child looked more than 70% of the time at the pattern, not the face, the probability that the child had autism was 100%. I thought it was a very impressive result because it's suggesting that a purely behavioral test focused on what captures the child's attention, people or patterns, might actually predict who has autism. Obviously, a test like this needs to come with certain caveats, namely that it was conducted in a clinic rather than in the general population. We don't know how well such a test would work in the general population. But it's suggesting that children with autism may simply be different. They may think differently, and rather than, rather than their attention being drawn to people, they might, it might be more drawn to the world of patterns. So this is the thesis I'm going to explore, the idea that there may be a link between autism and scientists because both of them have a love of patterns. The idea actually goes back to this man, Hans Asperger, the pediatrician working in Vienna in the 1940s, who said that for success in science, a dash of autism is essential. Well, this was just uh, one man's observation, but um, the idea was picked up by Ian James, uh, who published a paper um, based on the biographies of six famous scientists, suggesting that all of them had autism. Isaac Newton, um, who discovered gravity, Henry Cavendish in the 18th century, who discovered hydrogen, and then these four Nobel Prize win winners, Albert Einstein, uh, who received the Nobel Prize for his discovery of the photoelectric effect, uh, Marie Curie, who got the Nobel Prize for her discovery of radium, her daughter, Irene Joliot-Curie, who also got the Nobel Prize for her work on nuclear fission, and finally Paul Dirac, uh, who got the Nobel Prize for quantum mechanics. All of them, uh, men and women of science, and all of them apparently had autism. Well, it, you're already thinking, I'm sure, that to rely on biographical evidence to diagnose someone who's no longer living as having possible autism might be unreliable. So we've been looking at living scientists, including mathematicians, um, before I go on to tell you about them, just to um, mention the new book that came out by Steve Silberman, who has a wonderful biography of Henry Cavendish, who avoided people 
but who conducted really important early experiments, for example, measuring the density of the Earth back in the 18th century. And here we have Albert Einstein who said, I do not socialize because it would distract me from my work. So very much focused on his physics rather than on the world of people. But as I mentioned, biographies are fragmentary forms of evidence. Let's look at living scientists to see whether there's any evidence for a link between autism and science. So we found that the rate of autism amongst uh, students in the field of mathematics was much higher than in uh, students in the humanities, suggesting a link between autism and scientific ability. We also found that scientists, again students, show more autistic traits compared to students in the humanities. So these are suggesting there might be a link between autism and scientific aptitude. Uh, We also found that teenagers with Asperger's syndrome, one subgroup on the autism spectrum, perform better on these tests of mechanical reasoning. So again, suggesting that there might be a link between autism and scientific talent. It's not just about scientific talent, it's also about an interest in systems. People with autism, when you uh, ask them about their interests in systems, uh, um, report a much stronger interest than people in the general population. And systems might be mechanical or they might be natural, like the weather. The thing about systems is that they follow rules, and when you systemize, you're trying to identify the rules that govern the system so you can predict how the system works. So where might this link between autism and scientific aptitude come from? Well, one obvious possibility is genetics. Autism is genetic in part, uh, that if you have one child with autism in the family, the likelihood of another child also having autism is one in three, much higher than in the general population of 1%. So we looked at the parents and particularly the fathers of children with autism. What we found was that if you look at the fathers of children with autism, they don't necessarily have autism, but they do have a strong interest in systems. We found that fathers were overrepresented in the field of engineering as an occupation compared to fathers of typically developing children. So again, a link between autism and, uh, and a talent at systemizing, but pointing at a genetic link. So this leads to an interesting question. Um, if autism and scientific aptitude are linked genetically, uh, we might predict that in places like Silicon Valley, which attracts many people who have a, a strong interest in systems, you might find higher rates of autism. Well, Silicon Valley is a long way away, so we went to a Silicon Valley closer to home um, in the Netherlands. So I hope you can see here three Dutch cities. At the bottom of the map uh, is Eindhoven, and Eindhoven is the IT hub of the Netherlands. A third of the jobs in Eindhoven are in IT, And that's partly because they have the Eindhoven University of Technology there, a bit like MIT, but also since 1891, they've had the Philips factory there, attracting people with 
good aptitude in systems to move to that city. So we compared the rate of autism in that city to two other uh, Dutch cities, Utrecht and Haarlem, matched for size and other demographics, and found that the rate of autism in Eindhoven was more than twice as high as the other two Dutch cities. So another link between scientific or systems thinking aptitude and autism. Autism is more common in boys, and this leads to the question of whether boys as a group are also more interested in patterns or systems. We did a study looking at newborn babies, 24 hours old, presenting them again with a a face, a person, or a geometric pattern, and found that even on the first day of life, more boys looked for longer at the patterns, and more girls looked for longer at the social stimulus, the face. So this is suggesting that something about being male is linked to both autism and interest in systems. Boys produce twice as much testosterone as girls, and prenatally, testosterone shapes brain development. So we've done a study where we've measured the testosterone in the amniotic fluid that surrounds the baby during pregnancy, and then waited until the baby was born. And what we found was that the higher the child's prenatal testosterone, the more autistic traits they have, but also the stronger their interest in systems. So once again, a factor, in this case prenatal testosterone, is linking both autistic traits and interest in systems. But let's go back to autism. Uh, This is Gary McKinnon. Many of you might recognize him. He was uh, arrested for hacking into the Pentagon um, in 2001. And uh, he was... um, Uh, He he was uh, brought to uh, legal proceedings uh, and accused of terrorism and criminal activity. In fact, he has Asperger's syndrome. It was diagnosed in our clinic. I spoke to him, and it was very clear that he wasn't intending to commit a crime or to um, commit a terrorist offence. He was simply looking for information that he thought might be in the public interest to expose. Uh, In fact, to prove that he wasn't trying to hide what he was doing, every time he got to another layer of computers in the Pentagon, he left a post-it note saying, your security is poor. (laughs) (laughs) So people like Gary shouldn't be punished for the mistakes they've made. Uh, Rather, we should be looking at uh, their abilities that they have. Uh, We should be ensuring that they're not unemployed, which the majority of adults with autism and Asperger's are. We should be valuing them, and we should be giving them support for their disability, but also allowing them to use their aptitude at understanding systems. I'm going to finish in time, I hope, just with uh, this 10-year-old Max Park, who uh, has autism, and his particular interest in systems is the Rubik's Cube, He loves patterns, and he is listed in the top 100 Rubik Cube players in the world. So, uh, in conclusion, we found links between autism and scientific talent. I think that this is showing us that autism is part of neurodiversity, the range of minds that are out there in the population, that people with autism are different, they think differently, 
much like scientists. They do have disability and need support, and sometimes they show talent. Uh, I think that looking at autism in this way, that autism is teaching us about the minds of scientists, and the minds of scientists are making us rethink how we think about autism. Thank you. Our next speaker is uh, Professor John Dupre. Thank you. Um, well, let me start off by saying um, I certainly don't want to argue with um, Simon's final conclusion that we should um, certainly try to respect differences between people, support them where necessary, and look for the things that they are um, good at rather than the things that we think may be problematic. Um, and I also don't want to... Um, I'm nervous about arguing about autism with um, Simon, who certainly knows a lot more about it than I do. However, I do have some reservations about the story he tells, um, and I guess this is in terms of some kind of broader conceptual issues that I'll try and explain. Actually, something that I have been interested in for a long time is classification, um, and one of the things that I, you find when you look at classification is that it's very hard. And it's hard because typically it's not really something that's just given to us by nature. It's something that requires uh, a good deal of input. Now, one, one of the people interested in classification, actually one of the um, uh, psychiatric um, illness is a particularly uh, fascinating and often studied topic. And, um, and in fact, some of you may know about this. There is there's a the rather famous um, handbook to this, the um, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which has now run into its fifth version, each new version as a result of an enormous amount of very heated debate. And indeed, um, one of the um, main things that's changed in DSM-5 from DSM-4 is the description of autism. Um, and just, if I just quote very briefly from some of the... Um, surrounding literature. Uh, using DSM-4, patients could be diagnosed with four separate disorders, autistic disorder, Asperger's disorder, childhood disintegrative disorder, or the catch-all diagnosis of pervasive developmental disorder not otherwise specified. Researchers found that these separate diagnoses were not consistently applied across different clinics and treatment centers. Um, so now the new DSM-5 has um, abolished all these diagnoses and replaced them with autism spectrum disorder, which is a range of conditions. And people with ASD tend to, note, have communication deficits such as responding inappropriately in conversations, misreading nonverbal interactions, having difficulty building friendships, and so on. In addition, they may be overly dependent on routines, highly sensitive to changes in their environment, intensely focused on inappropriate items. Now, the point is only that these are a number of, of traits. They're all qualified with you know, what people may have, sometimes have, tend to have. And so um, I think it's, it's very certainly looks like progress to describe this as a spectrum of conditions 
rather than um, a what philosophers sometimes call natural kind, a kind of division of nature somehow given to us by the way things are. Not that there aren't ways that people are with autism, but whether they form a kind, a kind of discrete set of, um, of entities in the world is more problematic. Now, perhaps um, even uh, more controversially, I think it's important to say something similar about science. Science is a very diverse set of practices. Perhaps if we were German and talked about Wissenschaft more comfortably, this would um, seem obvious because uh, this is a concept, of course, that includes both science and much of the humanities. Um, my, my main professional interest is in biology, and I want to say biology doesn't strike me as all that systematic. Um, in the kind of way that Simon was gesturing. Biology is full of difference, specificity, um, and so on. Now, um, I, I don't know, we didn't, I don't know exactly the figures of the scientists, but the scientists who uh, Simon mentioned were physical scientists, and he did, talked about mathematician. Um, and and you know, looking more broadly at science, I'm struck when I look at those pictures of the face and the pattern that, to me, the face looks a more scientifically interesting object than the pattern. I mean, maybe I'm testosterone-challenged, but, but it does seem to me that that's more seriously that there's a great deal more scientific work done on analyzing human faces, their significance to other people, and so on, than on um, the significance of multicolored balls. Um, so the, the upshot of all this is, is just a little caution, I'd want to say, that what I, what I get from um, Simon's data is not so much um, the, what the kind of strap line, autistic people are wired for science. I think we can really only say having autistic traits is correlated with an aptitude for physical and mathematical sciences. Now, that's not an uninteresting result, but it seems um, less perhaps exciting than scientists, you know, have... Autistic people are wired for science, which I, and, and I don't know that we would exactly disagree there, but maybe we'll find out later. Another area where I'm a little bothered, and this is a little closer to my own um, areas of, of perhaps some expertise, is in the reference to genetics. Now, first of all, just a very simple point, parent-children correlations are not evidence for genetics, um, I'm rather proud to say that my son is currently doing a PhD in philosophy, but I'm not, I would not think this is mostly attributed to my having passed on philosophy genes. Um, I doubt whether there are philosophy genes. It just makes the point that people are very influenced in their upbringing in all kinds of ways that are um, you know, not certainly fully understood, are very interesting to study by their upbringing. So... I mean, in fact, I think, you know, what, what geneticists, when they're being careful, will tend to say, I think, truly, is all traits are both genetic and environmental. Better than that, all traits are developmental. I mean, traits emerge um, from um, a very complex interaction throughout 
uh, the you know early and well throughout life uh, between your biology and your environment. So it's not to say that there aren't very cautious ways of describing genetic relations or genetic features of traits that people have, but it's a very dangerous business. And one way of, of, of perhaps you know, just illustrating this is you often hear people talking about heritability, but I, I probably shouldn't go into detail, but I just... Um, make the point that when you hear the heritability, say, of, well, let's say autism, but um, whatever, any trait that you hear of is something or other, it's worth noting that, that any trait can be made to have a heritability of zero or a heritability of 100 by either keeping the genetics fixed or by keeping the environment fixed. This is a measure of explanation of difference, not a measure of causation. We can talk about that if we want to. But, um, and, and I guess, you know, I, I should perhaps mention too that, um, you know, that there, there um, well, Simon mentioned there are differences between, um, among babies, um, but again, um, babies are just a stage in development and um, what exactly this shows or whether which who it shows is more scientific, I think is at least open to debate. Now, I, I, I'm, I think I must touch just briefly on these gender issues. Now, of course, Simon was quite rightly very careful to say that scientific excellent, excellence is um, something that happens irrespective of gender. But also, of course, you know, we do know that boys do tend to be exposed to more testosterone than girls. So if he's right, then we are going to find that, on average, boys are going to turn up, men are going to be a lot better at science than girls. Um, and and this, this is a matter of biology, unless we kind of um, intervene by shooting up girls full of testosterone at a very early age. Now, what I want to say about this is, is that this is um, a very problematic, politically controversial claim to make. Now, I'm not saying that we should decide the truth of it on the basis of you know, what we would like to be true, but it's something that um, we should really look at the evidence very carefully before we um, you know, jump to this kind of conclusion. And I would say um, that... I'm not persuaded that this evidence has been um, presented. Um, finally, and I guess here again, um, I'm not sure how much I disagree, but as a matter of rhetoric, I am rather troubled by the idea of our being wired for anything. Now, of course, we're not wired. If you take people's heads off, there are no wires there. There's just a kind of gray goo. Um, this is a metaphor. And when we, when we look at metaphors, we should think, well, what does this metaphor suggest? What does the metaphor of being wired suggest? Often um, it's, and it's prefixed by hardwired. Now, I think the, the images of these are fixity, that some way somebody, if you're wired a certain way, you're going to stay that way. Um, I mean, because nobody's going to go in the head and start shifting the wires around. And predetermination. Wiring is something that biology is supposed to provide. And I guess the thing that, problem, that I find problematic about this metaphor 
is that what we increasingly discover in biology generally and human biology much more specifically is developmental flexibility. We are extraordinarily plastic creatures, um, members of a, of a living system that is extraordinarily plastic. Um, and I really, uh, therefore, would question caution, if not um, complete renunciation, of the metaphor of being wired for anything. Thank you. Thank you, John. Uh, before we invite our uh, next speaker, Dr. Evans, uh, I would like to invite uh, si Simon to respond to John. Okay. <laughs> uh, so this is where it gets lively. <laughs> um, so uh, um, maybe I'll just comment on a few of the points you made. Um, the, f the first one was about classification and natural kinds. You know, is autism a category? Or is it a spectrum? And here I don't think we're going to disagree. Um, and uh, you know, some of our work um, measures that spectrum by using an instrument called the autism spectrum quotient. I talked a bit about autistic traits. And I don't think autism is a natural kind. So we can sort of agree on that one. <laughs> um, I think um, another one I think we can agree on very quickly is that um, I said autism is genetic in part. And the other part is obviously environment or non-genetic factors. And we know that because you can have identical twins where one has autism and one doesn't. So they're genetically identical, but they don't both have autism. And that means that there's a non-genetic factor. And uh, it might be an epigenetic factor or other kind of environmental factor that's operating or interacting with the gene. But it's not all in the genetics. So um, I think we can probably agree on that. Um, the uh, point you made about, um, I suppose, the social um, concern that people might have about the idea that testosterone is in part, prenatal testosterone is in part linked to scientific, scientific aptitude, I can quite easily see why that could be of, of social concern. And all I'd really say at this stage, because I want to leave time for the whole evening, is that We've simply identified prenatal testosterone as one factor that's shaping brain development. It's not the only factor. So, um, you know, testosterone itself may be interacting with experience, may be interacting with other molecules. Many it could be affecting genetic um, gene expression. But uh, I don't, so I don't want to sort of place too much emphasis on the testosterone, but the evidence is showing it's playing some role. Um, so your last point, I think, was about you know the phrase "wired for anything," you know, and I agree that there is a sort of scary implication that this sounds deterministic, that right from birth we're wired to be the adult we become, as if there's no plasticity in the system. And again, I wouldn't want to give that uh, message. You know, there is plenty of plasticity, uh, but equally. I don't think the infant is a blank slate. Uh, so we are seeing some signs of differences, even on day one of life, which are then going to snowball, depending on which environment you're in. So I'd perhaps just stop there. Thank you, Simon. Um, 
the, we will follow up these questions in, in when we open up the floor at the end of the next speech. Uh, our next speaker is Dr. Bonnie Evans, uh, who is a historian of science. So, hi, I'm Bonnie. Um, actually, I've got a bit of... I've had a bit of a cough, so I might cough. <laughs> and excuse me if I do. Um, so what I want to argue is my presentation <laughs> somewhere. So it should be the next if one I go up. Down. That's right. Um, so what I want to argue today is that autism has always been a central concept in the description of child development in children. It's always been a central concept in thinking about social development in children um, ever since the birth of developmental psychology. What happened was that around uh, 40 years ago, there was a major change in the meaning of autism. So um, autism... Um, a hundred years ago meant the, almost the exact opposite of what it means today. So what I want to talk about um, is just why this happened in, in my presentation today. Um, because my argument is if, that we can understand more about why this change occurred, then we can understand more about our current models for thinking about autism, um, and in particular this idea that um, autism is associated with minds wired for science. So despite popular belief, it was not Leo Kanner who first described um, autism in children. It was, in fact, the Swiss uh, psychologist Jean Piaget. So Piaget had studied with Eugène Bloiler, um, who was the first person to coin the word autism in 1908. Um, and uh, Bloiler understood this as a symptom of schizophrenia. Autism he regarded as a symptom of schizophrenia, and that was also a concept that he created. But... Um, both Bloiler and Piaget, they thought that autism was a normal stage of development in all infants. It, it was part of the early stages of development. Um, and throughout the 1920s and 1930s, Piaget wrote a lot about autism as this first stage of development before the infant is able to grasp objects in the world, develop concepts, and also to develop a sense of self. So um, here are some words that Piaget used to describe autism in the 1920s. Um, he said it was characterized by an absence of logic. So that was how Piaget described it in 1922. Um, he said there was a predominance of visual imagery over conceptual thought. It was kind of symbolic thinking. He, he associated it with fantasy. He also wrote about um, the autistic imagination, and he associated it with creative thinking, um, so, and he understood it really as the origins of play and creative thought. So this is a very different autism than the one that we are now talking about today, an absence of logic. So um, in the UK in the 1920s and up to the 1950s, um, these ideas are taken up by a number of developmental psychologists. This is Susan Isaacs, who's arguably the most important developmental psychologist in the UK, and she set up the Department of Child Development at the Institute of Education. Um, she also served on numerous government panels um, uh, related to uh, education 
in children. And in 1933, she wrote a book, Social Development in Young Children, which was one of the first books on social development in young children. Um, and she used Piaget's ideas to think about this early stage of development, what she understood as this pre-social um, way of thinking before the infant is able to understand the world around him or her, and she thought more about it in relation to how infants developed um, concepts and ideas of um, other people as well, so not just um, objects. Um, but this is in fact, and, and, and she understood it definitely as this, you know, the origins of creative play, um, Margaret Lowenfeld, many other developmental psychologists in this period, and really up until the 1950s, they all understood autism as this thing, it was the origins of creativity. Um, and this is really the basis for human relations psychology, in fact. Um, so the seed of which is this, you know, these pre-social states of mind, how do we understand them? So what changed? How did we get from autism as characterized by an absence of logic to autism as characterized by minds wired for science? So all of these psychologists, in fact, um, these psychologists working from the 20s to the 40s who were all interested in these dreamlike states and creativity, um, none of them had actually really thought about the psychological development of children such as these. Um, this is a very uh, rare photograph. I found it um, in a book from the 1950s. It depicts children um, in a mental deficiency institution in the UK in the 1950s, around 1957. So, um, and it also points out at the bottom that these places in the 50s were very understaffed and overcrowded, which they were. So here's... Um, a history lesson. From 1913 to 1959 in the UK, there was a law which meant that any children who were classed with mental deficiency according to intelligence tests um, would be placed in institutions such as these. So they'd be um, referred usually to psychiatric um, assessment or a child guidance clinic, and then they'd be referred to a deficiency institution. They were taken away from their parents. It was a pretty dire state of affairs in the 1950s. And um, so around and, um, at the end of the 50s, around 73% of referrals to these institutions came from local education authorities who basically said, um, we, don't, we, we don't know how to teach these children, so we'll just refer them on to you. So, um, you know, it was a um, terrible situation. Um, and it overshadowed the early stages of developmental psychology. So all these theories um, from the 20s up until the 50s, um, looking at uh, creativity as an early stage of thought and pre-social thought, they were um, overshadowed by the fact that, in fact, a major section of the population were not being included in the studies. So here we come to the change in meaning. Um, in 1959, the Mental Health Act was passed, and it overturns mental deficiency law. It leads to the closure of these institutions. Um, and after 1959, what happens is actually to be classed as autistic or to receive the diagnosis of autism actually grants educational rights to children because there's, there are a lot of discussions in, in Parliament at the time. Well, the Autism is first raised in Parliament in 1960. Um, and there are a lot of discussions between health and education authorities over who should be responsible for children who were previously in um, deficiency institutions. And if a child is diagnosed with autism, then the education authorities become responsible for them. So it's, it's a very important... I've looked at a lot of um, documents... Um, 
looking at correspondence between health and education departments in this period, in the 60s, um, and, and a lot of them are asking these questions. What is autism? How can we define autism? Do we have a meaning for autism? And they're constantly trying to push back um, responsibility between one department for another. Well, um, I think these children are autistic. Well, I don't know if they're autistic. And can anybody actually, does anybody actually know what autism is? Is this thing measurable? Do we have any um, categories? Do we have any way of knowing how um, we should, whether or not we should be educating these children? So these discussions um, go on a lot in the 1960s. Um, and the big question that they ask is how many are there? <laughs> how many autistic children are there? Because I need to know if there are 800, how am I going to set up you know, my, my schools or how am I going to set up these hospitals? So um, they demand definitions. So they demand um, that this thing is measured. They demand to know how many children have autism. Now, these are actually quite similar demands to those um, in the early 20th century for intelligence tests. So in the early 20th century, the government is demanding that they um, have better testing methods so that they know which children should be sent to different schools, so that they know which children should be sent to these awful deficiency institutions. Um, but now this is a demand for something quite different, and it's a demand for a category which is much more elusive, which is much more complicated, um, which is much more difficult to define, and which nobody had really defined previously. Um, so, and on the left, so this is um, actually the first, you don't have to look at all of the, on, the details on this, but this is actually the first... Um, attempt to define autism in 1961, um, Mildred Creek, who was a, a child psychiatrist, set out a list of nine points that she said um, you would observe in children with autism. So it would be gross and sustained impairment of emotional relationships with people, apparent unawareness of his own personal identity, but that's the one um, we want to look at because when the first epidemiological study was conducted, they said, I, um, you know, this definition is not <laughs> clear enough, apparent unawareness of his own personal identity. How do I know if a child has apparent unawareness of his own personal identity? I need, <laughs> I need, a, better, I need a better definition. So um, we also see, uh, so in the first epidemiological study, it's defined behaviorally in 1966. These are the definitions, um, things like um, um, in speech items, echolalia, reversal of pronouns, um, in movement items, self-spinning, jumping, flapping, toe-walking. So they start to look for behaviours that they'll see within all children um, who uh, have autism. But you also see the first tests um, in experimental psychology for autism, and this is, in fact, one of the first tests that looks at eye movements that was designed by Beda Hermelin and Neil O'Connor um, in the 1960s, um, and they placed um, an object. It wasn't always a face. It was a different object at the end of, the, um, of this little... Uh, um, it was a little box with a peephole, and they place an object and see whether the children looked at it. So they found that children with autism um, tended to um, look around and gaze around, whereas those who had just low intelligence levels would look at the object but wouldn't be able to understand it, whereas those with autism, they argued, would look around everywhere. Um, and that's why they hadn't understood um, what the object was. So it was undirected eye-gazing. Um, but so it's in the middle of this concentrated effort to define autism using behavioral categories, statistical and epidemiological studies that the meaning of autism actually changes. So this is um, a, a very good um, kind of summary of, of this change um, by Michael Rutter in 1972. 
And he says uh, autism means a withdrawal into fantasy, but this is not what happens in the syndrome of autism. A young autistic child has a deficiency of fantasy rather than an excess. But this idea that the autistic child has a deficiency of fantasy, a deficiency of fantasy, um, becomes very dominant. There's no kind of, there's no other um, description to fill this gap, but it's a deficiency of fantasy. So what, what's the opposite of <laughs> creativity or what's the opposite of fantasy? What's the opposite of imagination is what people begin to think. Um, you know, there'd always been this promise ever since the first epidemiological study that this thing would be defined, that there would be a way to define this pre-social or non-social thought. Um, in the mid-1970s, you get people like John and Elizabeth Newson, who are actually sociologists, but they become very interested in autism. Um, they draw from a growing movement in cognitive psychology based around, as we've heard, computer metaphors of the mind. Um, and they, um, they argue that um, instead of there being a, a social faculty, they, ha they have this idea that there's a social faculty of the mind. They also say there's like an, a non-social faculty. So it's, an, it's, another, it's a way of defining um, this thing, autism. Um, but the person who really kind of nails the classification or who um, defines the classification, she's uh, Lorna Wing, um, and she's based in the UK, um, she takes a total population of 35,000 children in Camberwell, and she says if we look at an entire population, she's not actually, in fact, that interested in autism at the time. She says if you look at an entire population of children and then you um, look at the behaviors that they present and you look at the way that they um, cluster together, then you see that they are clustering in particular ways, and this is where she comes up with the triad of impairments that autism is characterized by um, uh, deficits in uh, social um, interaction, communication, and imagination. But, but she defines it as an impairment. It's still like an impairment-based model of autism, but she is beginning to define it. And it's Lorna Wing's uh, work that gets taken up in the DSM, which John has told us about. Um, so it's that category which ta gets taken up in, uh, or the triad of impairments that gets taken up in DSM um, uh, 3, the revised edition. Um, so, uh, and here we are, the DSM again. So a number of historians and philosophers, they've written on the way that statistical models have become important um, in the last uh, 30 years, in particular um, in terms of you know, the description of the psyche, how we understand the mind. Um, the DSM has become one of the most important um, uh, books to, to use to, to enable this, these kind of classifications, a statistical model of the mind. Um, but, you know, the interest in autism and the growth of the interest in autism, it's very unique. It's not like any other category that's grown, for example, depression, um, bipolar disorder, ADHD. They've all been associated with um, a pharmaceutical product. That's why there's been more interest in them. They've been attached to a They've been attached to a kind of marketing model, and that's what many you know, historians have written about. But autism is unique because autism had no meaning. It had no meaning in the, the middle decades of the 20th century. And um, you know, psychiatry has been looking for a meaning for it, and it's almost that that meaning is a, um, you know, a reaction to the earlier models, but it's also been uh, created by those models themselves. It's a, you know, we need the science, we need the um, statistics, we need the facts, 
we need to know um, what this thing is. So it's become the kind of res perfect receptacle for these, um, for these ideas. Um, so that brings us to our current model of autism, and of course Simon can um, discuss that better than any of us. But um, you know, in many ways, I think that it is a reaction to the ideas. Um, you know, these early ideas of children being involved in reverie and dreams and fantasy. And as atypical children or different children began to gain the rights to be educated, the rights to be accepted as social subjects, psychologists had to re really react to these earlier models. And they've almost just, well, they have created um, the opposite model. Now, um, that leads us to just the final question, which I'm sure we have a lot of questions anyway, but is autism in some way um, a product of the instruments that have been used to measure it? Um, is it just a reflection of some of these um, things and also uh, a radical critique of these earlier models? I was getting ready with uh, questions of my own, but seeing that uh, Bonnie has left a question up on the slide, uh, I, will, uh, I will ask the other two panelists to, uh, to give their thoughts on w this question, and then I'll follow up with the questions and also have questions from the floor. John? Let me just start. Um, um, I, I assume not. Um, I, I guess that the, the, the only thing I would, um, I would just qualify that argument with is, in a certain way, the, the way you would say yes is, is that car one carves a certain space out of the range of variation um, when one defines a concept. So if, if um, one thinks of autism as, as a kind of yes or no criterion that says of every person, are you this or are you not? Then it's certainly a product of the instruments. Um, if, if the question were then supposed, if, if one were to infer from that that there are no traits that are measured by those instruments, that would be a huge overreaction. But I think, one, I think that, that, that that's a distinction worth keeping in mind because we do tend to reify. We do tend to... Um, to look at concepts that have this, um, this this artificial aspect, and think we have kind of carved out. We've not that, that that somehow we've just discovered some region of the world that that is unique, mm. and um, we need to avoid doing that. Thank you. Um, I was just uh, just to add on to that before I uh, uh, go on to Simon. This process of carving out. I mean when. When I began research on autism, and most people coming into autism research now start thinking or start regarding autism as a biological homogeneous entity, and that illusion soon disappears. And as uh, Bonnie pointed out in her talk, that uh, a lot of the definitional issues about autism uh, I mean, we're influenced by legal, socio-legal processes, and that's something that needs to be kept in mind even when evaluating biological neuroscientific research about autism to, to uh, keep those definitional issues in mind. And that's the process of carving out uh, what would possibly not be natural kinds from, uh, from, uh, from a general population. And, uh, Can I make a very quick comment sure. on that? Just, just to add to what I was saying, I mean, one of the, a process that, that philosophers and historians of science have, have noticed often it is very interesting 
is that at the very core of the kind of scientific expertise, people tend to be aware of just this kind of problem in the way you describe. The problem is that the further you get from that, as people use these categories in various other contexts in everyday life, the more reified the categories become, the more they seem to be just biological, natural kinds. And I think you know, it's something that... that you know, people have to be very careful to try and ameliorate. Absolutely. Same. So um, just responding to your, your presentation, Bonnie, uh, very briefly, uh, I think it's really good that you situated it uh, historically. Um, and it was very interesting to sort of go right back to Piaget. And uh, what I sort of took from that was actually that the word autism or autistic has been used um, to mean lots of different things. And, you know, I read a headline in the newspaper saying, America is autistic, <laughs> referring to its foreign policy, that it mostly thinks about itself rather than <laughs> other countries. You know, so the, but, you know, just because the word itself could be used very loosely um, doesn't mean that, uh, you know, that it might still have some relevance to disability. So I think that when Piaget was saying all infants start off in this autistic state of you know, being uh, self-centred and they have to kind of learn to become social or develop sociality. You know, that was just, you know, one use of the word. But actually, maybe what you missed out in your historical account was Kanner's paper in 1943 was saying, when we use the word autism, we're situating it within the field of psychiatry as a category of so-called mental disorder, mental illness... Uh, disease, that was the kind of medical model. Um, and I think that really changed the way that the word was used. And we've, you know, I think, thankfully, as you pointed out, Lorna Wing's work has challenged the concept of it being so categorical, as if autism is here and everybody else is over here. We now see it as a kind of seamless spect spectrum where we all have some autistic traits, and it's a matter of degree. But, you know, I think maybe part of the point you're making is simply that the word autistic or autism crops up in many different usages. And uh, so the last point I wanted to make was um, we've got historians of, of autism in the audience. I can see Adam Feinstein up there. I mentioned Steve Silberman's book. He's coming back to London uh, next month. Uh, so the, the story of the history of autism is being told, which is really important. But relevant to tonight, we're meant to be bringing out ethical implications. And I suppose what I was trying to present as a kind of new way of thinking about autism is to no longer see autism as a disease, as a disorder, um, as a mental... Uh, I think you called it a mental deficiency. It was the old language. Not you, but the old language. But more looking at autism as a mix of disability and aptitude... Uh, and I think that's a kind of that does have ethical implications as to how we think about individuals with autism. Um, you know, should we be curing it? Should we be preventing it? Which is what we do with diseases, especially diseases that we believe are 100% negative. Or should we be looking at this as a person who's different, different profile of cognitive interests and styles, and uh, making space for diversity in the population? 
Um, just coming back on the, um, the point about Leo Kanner and, and missing that out in the history, I deliberately missed that out of the history because that is often, you know, where everybody big starts with the history. Sure. Um, and I think that's um, meant that there has actually been a misunderstanding of, of um, you know, the earlier history of autism. Um, and Leo Kanner, in fact, has a very similar model of autism to Piaget. He, he, he has a very good description of cases. Those are excellent case descriptions. And that is why a lot of um, clinicians in particular have responded to them and reacted to them and, and used them as the, the origins of autism. But actually, autism does go back um, much further than that as a category and, um, and a way of thinking about, about child development. Um, I mean, I think about... Uh, thinking about the, yes, the ethical implications of, um, you know, um, using these new categories and, and these new ideas, I, I, I think, um, and as I referred to in my talk, that, um, you know, the, the changes in, in terms of the integration of children with many different um, disabilities or many different abilities and, and the fact that this is now um, something which is within, um, you know, within our everyday lives, something that we see all of the time, you know, that's a, a, a wonderful change that has occurred um, since the 19... Uh, and, and in the 1980s, that, that was when you had the, um, the origins of uh, statementing, and that meant that more children began to be um, accepted within the mainstream education system as well. So, um, you know, it's... it's uh, that's I, I see as one of the major ethical um, implications, or one of the major changes that happened in terms of in terms of children's rights, um, and I think it continues to be a very important category in terms of ensuring children's rights. Absolutely. And just before we open the floor to discussion, uh, one final point uh, for Simon is: uh, I mean, the the point about neurodiversity is is very very vital. Um, in, in, in figuring out and, and really making space for all the, the islands of uh, talent and ability. But um, at the same time, I think the utility of the medical model is, cannot be discounted because uh, that there are, uh, there are uh, disabilities, there are deficiencies that need support. So, yeah. so these, um, the medical model and the neurodiversity often are pitted against each other as, 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 uh, as one or the other, and I don't think either of those two extreme positions uh, should, should be supported. On? Oh, sorry. Do you want well, I just wanted to ask a question to maybe both of you. I mean, on that, I mean, I just what what I struggle to grasp in the way you describe that is exactly what the utility of the classic the category of autism in this. I mean, that we should notice difference, recognize difference, provide support where it's needed, and recognize the value of different ways of being when you know that that applies seems right but now as my understanding is that that you know that that the autism spectrum encompasses some very sick people at one end i mean that that are not socially functional i i i'm asking you you look at that yeah. maybe not um, but but i mean if that's not true then um, yeah, great. I mean, I, I, would, I wouldn't use the word sick, um, but that's, again, because it comes from uh, a different view, uh, which is a disease, view, disease model. So, I, you know, I think there are some diseases out there, um, you know, diseases like cancer, where you would say the patient is sick and we should try to eradicate the causes or prevent 
the disease. And I think autism doesn't fit neatly into that medical model. I think, but, it, but I think, it, I think it fits more neatly into the disability model. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in certain environments, people with autism may really struggle. And I was just coming on the tube just now from Piccadilly, and you know, in the rush hour, people with autism would find this a nightmare. You know, the number of people, the, the noise, the sensory overstimulation, you know, it, it could easily lead to what you describe as uh, not being able to function. And in fact, many people with autism in that situation may completely freeze up and need help. You know. But in another, another environment, that same individual, left in a very peaceful, tranquil um, study where they can build their own system and it's under their control, may actually show us what they're capable of. So, you know, that's, that, that makes it very different to cancer or heart disease. Uh, on that note, the floor is now open for questions. So uh, we will take questions in groups. So if you raise uh, hands for when you have questions, so we'll take questions in twos or threes and then try and, and give a panel answer to that. So, uh, yep. Yes, please uh, wait for the microphone. I think the, uh, the link, possible link, between the IT industry and autism uh, was earlier mentioned. And uh, that raises the question as to whether uh, people who perhaps uh, were not or would not be classified as autistic at the start could... could could they, uh, are they becoming autistic or are they made autistic uh, uh, through the IT industry and the social isolation that that uh, sometimes, uh, uh, sometimes means? And uh, uh, also, of course, we have the scenario now of uh, uh, teenagers and others uh, becoming addicted to computer games and becoming socially isolated. So does this feature in society, does it actually create uh, autism uh, where there was no autism before? Thank you. That's a brilliant question. Second question, could we have a microphone? Boys being interested, boys being interested in uh, science. Um, what do you think of the fact that the London Mathematical Society has consistently argued that mathematics has not has been socialised into boys throughout childhood, throughout history, and even to this day, a lot of women are not encouraged to do mathematics or science. And so, my question is: Are, are you being too reductionistic? Reduc- is that the word? Reductionistic about science and Further to that, as an interest, uh, would, uh, uh, have you looked into whether socioeconomic class, there's more people with, less people with autism with economic class? Because it seems to me that in, in regard to the question of environments, that could be quite important. Thank you. So um, both the questions are uh, related to, okay, we have a third question. So we'll take a third question. Is that a related question? Okay, then why don't we address well, actually, these? Two? I wouldn't mind. Uh, this is Virginia Bovell, who who looks at the ethics of autism. So it'd be interesting to get your question early in the discussion. Brilliant. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Um, it's been a very interesting um, set of presentations. Thank you. Um, 
and especially it's been, it seems to me, about classification and the work of classification. But in response to the last question, I wonder if we're missing something fairly crucial in not referring to biography and narrative written by autistic people themselves and where people with autism have a learning disability and are not able to write by their loved ones, by family members. And I wonder if those experiential accounts of autism might actually produce rather contrasting accounts of what are the core features of autism um, linked to that um, just to observe that we can't be too reductive about what we mean by science or autism. Many high-functioning people with autism are highly critical of the direction of scientific inquiry into autism itself. So there's a bit of a paradox there. Thank you. So we have two questions on the, on the social determinants of autism. First, on, on whether the lifestyle and environment can influence the development of autism-related uh, features. The second one on social factors. And then a broader question on experiential accounts. Um, Simon, do you sure. want to go first? So um, just on this first question, uh, could IT cause autism? Um, I, I, don't think, I don't think the causality is in that direction. I think people with autism, this is what I was arguing, are more attracted to fields like IT or mathematics because they're very systematic and predictable. People with autism seem to have a preference for predictability. So maths, you get the same answer every time. Whereas in the world of people... You know, even your best friend might not react in the same way each time. So people are very confusing, whereas the world of numbers or the world of computer code should work identically every time. So I think, I think it's not that the IT is causing the autism, it's that the mind of people with autism is attracted to predict predictability. And, you know, in the back you, you asked the question about, um, you know, does autism vary across social class? So we just get that one out of the way. My understanding is that actually you find autism in all social classes. It's not more common in one social class than another. Um, you also asked the question about, um, you know, are we teaching maths in a way that is sort of in some way gendered so that it's sort of more attractive or easier for boys and we're in some way alienating girls? And I think that's absolutely a possibility. Uh, a very concrete example might be that uh, if there's an absence of role models who are women as maths teachers, that might be discouraging girls from even thinking about becoming a mathematician. But I think what's kind of interesting is there's been a shift um, uh, of women into science because we now have more women in certain sciences, but we still have more men in other sciences. So medicine, for example, which is science applied to people, is now majority female. Uh, the same is true for, um, for uh, zoology. So that science is applied to animals. So science is applied to living things, seems to, seems to attract more females, whereas fields like mathematics and physics and computer science, which is science directed towards objects or abstract systems, still seems to attract more male applicants at my university, at LSE, and it's, it's seen very broadly. So to me, this is saying that males and females are equally good at science, 
but they may be choosing to study different kinds of science, uh, that more women, on average, are choosing to study sciences applied to people or animate, animate events, and uh, more males are choosing to study sciences applied to inanimate uh, patterns like mathematics. And those are just choices, I think. Uh, you know, to argue that there's discrimination or some other kind of social uh, bias going on. Over and above... Yeah. Yeah. Does it weaken the contention that you're saying that autism is genetic? Because if it's not linked to sex, it's linked to gender, it's much less likely to be genetic. Yeah. I mean, I don't think autism is linked to sex or gender, and I don't think science is either. I was just saying that we've got this observation that in fields like engineering, it's still about 75% male, if you look at university departments. Um, you could say there's been a very subtle kind of process of socialization which has put girls off at an early point, and the same for maths. It's about 75% male. Uh, but we, don't see, we see the opposite in fields like medicine and biology, um, especially human and animal biology. <coughs> so, you know, um, I don't think... Uh, so so I, I don't think gender or sex is the driver... I think there might be things linked to that, and I picked out just one factor like testosterone. Um, but I don't think it's the only factor. But the fact that you get talented female physicists and um, mathematicians and engineers shows that it's not the kind of all-or-none thing. It's just that we're seeing interesting uh, differences in or group differences between groups. Do you want, um, Bonnie, do you want to get to the experiential? Yeah. So... Um, yeah, the question about um, biography and autistic individuals, I think it's an important point. Hopefully I can um, respond a little bit to these other questions about um, changes in society and how, this, um, how society affects how we think about autism as well. So um, I think that, um, yes, if you look at biographical accounts, you are going to get a, a very different um, description of autism. But I suppose one of the things that I wanted to highlight is that after, it's after the 1959 Act, it's after the integration of children um, into the education system that you do begin to get um, these kind of new descriptions, new understandings of autism because people are given a voice that they never had before. So, um, you know, it's quite a recent phenomenon that these, um, that these uh, biographical accounts have, have come about now. Um, and I think um, if you think about, you know, the major changes that occurred in the 1960s and you see that children do get integrated in society, they do get um, integrated into situations that they would never have been integrated into before, um, you do get different models of social engagement. You get different models of, um, you know, how, how we should respond and react to one another. Um, and, of course, the neurodiversity movement um, a Jim Sinclair's article um, in, 19, in the early 1990s um, that argued that you know all, every, everyone should um, be accepted that the, these um, you know that, that, that 
autism shouldn't be a, a disease category. And, and, and as Simon said, it, is, it isn't um, thought about that, thankfully, because, you know, it, these people have been, um, you know, um, because people with autism or those diagnoses have been um, given a voice and been able to um, make these claims and say other things and respond to scientists. And so we have a very different dialogue about autism um, that's quite a unique dialogue about autism. And it's also quite specific, um, I think, in Britain has been a very um, important uh, place for the development of theories of autism um, and it's had an impact on global understandings of autism. So, um, you know, the, these debates are new, they're new debates, it's new territory and, and it's been enabled by these changes, these historical changes. Great. Can I just respond to Virginia's question as well, which is I think that um, we as scientists learn most from people with autism and if they can write about their experience, that's fantastic. If the parents can write about their child's experience as a proxy, that's fantastic because, uh, you know, there's a, very, there's, a, there's a limit to what you can really understand about autism looking at it from the outside. Uh, you need to hear it from what it's like lived from the inside. Well, I just wanted to just say a tiny bit more about these environmental questions. And I guess possibly take as an excuse to pick up something that Simon said um, where he was in his response to, to my uh, remarks, where he mentioned uh, the idea of a blank slate. And I think this, this, this is a very good way of, of seeing how difficult these issues are. Because if, if, you, if you are, as I often am critical of, these um, genetic stories about where traits come from, it's very frequent that people accuse you of having a blank slate theory. Now, what, it's a very curious dialectic because everybody really agrees when they're being sort of careful and sober that everything has genetic causes and environmental causes. But the problem is that um, you know that actually the, the debate just polarizes very quickly, and so when you when you, when you what that actually means is that you can't there's no direct causal line going from either the genes or the environment to a particular outcome. Um, but when you question one of those lines, there are various accusations like um, you're either called a determinist or you're called a blank slate theorist. But of course, you know when as as somebody often called a blank slate theorist. Um, what I want to say is there's nothing written on the slate. So in that sense, it's a blank slate. But it doesn't mean anything, whatever, could be written on it. We're a certain kind of animal with certain kinds of tendencies. I think the problem with, with recognizing this is that it makes it incredibly hard to answer the kinds of questions that those, the, the last two, the two questions about environmental influences ask. My, my guess is that um, autistic traits cause an interest in IT and vice versa, which is usually the way in these biological situations that you get to two-way causality. I'm, I'm pretty sure that there are um, you know, social causes of the gender differences in these participations in different <coughs> kinds of sciences. You know, how they interact with biological differences, you know, we really don't know. That's great. Um, shall we have one, two, and three? Uh, thanks to all the uh, panellists for excellent presentations. Um, I'm a PhD student of social psychology here at LSE, researching adults with Asperger's syndrome. Um, I just wanted to pick up on um, a potential ethical implication of Simon's argument uh, about 
people with autistic traits having a propensity towards scientific disciplines. Um, science itself is uh, a, a politically complex institution that's um, heavily dependent on social skills and the steady accumulation of social capital. Um, you know, collab- collaborating with peers, impression management, reputation management, uh, presenting ideas publicly. Um, is there a potential ethical implication that um, if there are lots of people who have autism and want to become involved in science, that the actual infrastructure, the social infrastructure, doesn't suit their, um, uh, their particular skills and that they'll find it harder to progress uh, and achieve uh, positions of prominence? Right, uh I hadn't really thought about autism until last year when my teenage son attempted suicide and since then his medical and psychiatric teams have been undergoing essentially a a one-year debate about where he sits on the spectrum uh, whether he's autistic whether he's got Asperger's whether he's got non-verbal learning difficulties um, the question is really how it, how it feels for you as the scientists and the philosophers looking for definitive descriptions of what one is or one is not when society is looking to achieve some kind of differentiation on which it determines the level of emotional and financial support given to the child or the parent. Thank you. And one uh, last question. Gentleman in white tissue. Hey, um, for Simon, you mentioned the the link between in utero testosterone and mechanistic thinking. So I was just wondering if any works sort of more explicitly using longitudinal work looked at in utero testosterone levels and actual positive diagnosis. Mm. And if that is the case, um, how much do endocrinologists know about <coughs> the environmental stimuli which affect in utero testosterone and uh, this sort of goes against your idea of maybe we don't need to treat it, but I think the status quo is that we do want to treat it or, or avoid it, perhaps. So can can endocrinologists offer much advice on how to avoid risks of it actually developing by by lowering in utero testosterone levels? Thank you. So we have two questions on the the level of determinism of of, of autism one uh, one at a prenatal level and one at the at the individual level and then one of an integration aspect of uh, of of a person with autism into the world world of science. Uh, yeah. Simon, can you? Yeah, I mean, I suppose um, you're absolutely right that science doesn't operate in a vacuum. Uh, it's um, it's a profession. It's an industry, like you know many others. It's a human activity, and as such, it's going to be subject to politics. And you know, people with autism might struggle with the politics of doing science, but you know that doesn't mean that they're not necessarily that a person with autism couldn't be a good scientist, as in trying to figure out how the system works. You know, whatever system that they're choosing to study. Um, you know, it could be a mathematical equation. It could be the effect of factor A on factor B. So, sort of, you know, withdrawing from the world of politics and just focusing on their question and doing their lab experiments. You know, I think that what I was arguing is that they they may have the kinds of minds that are good at picking up detail, picking up patterns, um, 
and uh, you know a, a sort of predisposition to to do well in in that in those sorts of fields. Uh, I, I agreed with that. It was more a question of what can we do. Uh, yeah, you know. Yeah, and you know, I think, I think, I think, uh, I think the scientific community is kind of waking up to the fact that the people that get promoted in science may be the ones with good presentation skills and social skills, but actually that could overlook the, t- the truly talented scientists who, um, who are doing good science. I think the question at the back, first of all, um, I think it was very brave and honest of you to uh, share your, your personal family story. Um, we did some research that got published last year on the rate of suicidality in adults with autism and Asperger's syndrome and found frighteningly high rates. So this was published in The Lancet Psychiatry. But what we found was that um, that two-thirds of adults with Asperger's syndrome have thought about suicide and one-third of those adults have actually attempted suicide. So these these are worryingly high levels and presumably it reflects that people, adults with Asperger's syndrome, are not getting the right support. They don't feel valued and they don't feel they belong. They are struggling and that we need a lot more funding and resources into support services. I work in a clinic in Cambridge which does the diagnosis for adults with Asperger's and I can say, you know, recorded on this podcast, that there, are, there is almost nothing after the diagnosis and the government believes that there should be a so-called clinical pathway. Once you get your diagnosis, you're on a pathway of support. Well, that's the kind of theory, but it's not happening at, on the ground. And it may be that your, your family has experienced similar kinds of uh, lack of provision. So um, the, the last question that was asked was about fetal testosterone or prenatal testosterone. And, um, you know, could there be a, treat, a treatment implication should we be thinking about, for example, blocking testosterone so that the child is developing with less of it? Maybe that's going to move them away from a path towards autism and more on a path towards typical development. And you also asked about, um, has there, is there published evidence that children with autism do have elevated prenatal testosterone? Well, uh, there, is an, there is a study that was published in 2015 showing... Higher, rate, higher levels of prenatal testosterone in diagnosed autism. Uh, but I'd be very nervous about the idea of physicians uh, or pharmaceutical companies jumping take to the, the next step of saying, let's block testosterone. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah, okay, that's interesting. I mean, some people have wondered whether we should take the pharmaceutical step or pharmacological step, and I'd be worried about that because testosterone, if it's involved in autism, it, it's only one bit of autism, uh, one factor, uh, and we know testosterone has widespread effects on the body and the brain and, more contentiously, the mind, and by changing hormone levels, by blocking them or manipulating the hormone levels, we might have widespread unwanted side effects. So that's why I'd be nervous about it. But in, you're asking about environmental 
uh, factors that could influence your prenatal testosterone. Well, one that I know about is diabetes, that if the mother has diabetes during pregnancy, she has elevated insulin, which, and that also goes hand-in-hand hand with elevated testosterone. And to some extent, diabetes is linked to weight, it's linked to body fat during, during pregnancy. So that's an example where, for example, the, uh, the doctors could be monitoring uh, women's weight during pregnancy and spotting. But, you know, I think, um, you know, I, think, I think what we have to weigh up is this whole question about are we looking to change people with autism, either environmentally or through, through a drug, or are we looking to try to let people with autism be who they are and just change the environment around them so that they're more comfortable? John, you had to... Um, okay, well, um, I think I'll pass on the last question because I don't have the expertise on endocrinology. Um, on the second question, I think there's just a, a, a terrible dilemma there because I, think that I take the question to be about the process of classifying people in, order, in, in terms of, of the kind of um, institutional responses that, um, that are generated or administered. My, my, my concern is that where, where he is, it seems to the level of support that's available yeah. to him seems to depend on the name that's Yeah, yeah. So, NPLD or yeah, yeah. different things begin to happen. So, so I, I think the, the dilemma that I see there is that it seems... Clearly, in an ideal world, one would one would have um, the treatment, the response, the support would depend on a particular individual spectrum of characteristics, traits of the person involved. Um, I think that um, there are that that from a, if, if you are actually somebody responsible as an administrator, the temptation of treating cases on the basis of a classification into kinds is overwhelming for various reasons. I mean, obviously, it tells you what to do. It provides ways of um, avoiding liability for making judgments um, and um, decisions on the basis of specific circumstances. I think that maybe, so in a sense, one would just need profound political change in terms of responsibility or autonomy of decision makers and so on to address that problem I think as it is we're going to classify and act on the basis of classifications even though we know these classifications are hopelessly crude and heterogeneous um, just quickly on the question of scientific infrastructure I think it's a rather similar kind of dilemma, though perhaps the, the, the source of it is a little different. I mean, we, we all kind of naturally embrace the thought that something like science, which carries prestige and rewards and so on, should be awarded to people on the basis of how good they are. But then, um, you know, we are, as Aristotle said, political animals, and nobody has ever come up with a way of implementing anything like that that overcomes this um, actually rather biological I mean what I would say is we are deeply social animals and our sociality involves <laughs> negotiating with one another in all kinds of complex ways and you know you can you can provide criteria for um, you know who gets what who counts as what but people are going to use those criteria are going to um, apply them in various ways so 
It's just I think it, all you can say is we should have a continuous process of criticizing um, the, these structures, trying to improve them. Um, but again, there's no shortcut to perfection. Right. I'm afraid uh, I'm conscious of the time, so we, we have arrived at the end of our advertised time. That's and uh, I, I'm, um, I'll ask each of the panelists to sum up in one sentence what they are taking away from here, and then I'll take one sentence of my own uh, to, to wrap up the event. So, Bonnie. Oh, I start. <laughs> um, one sentence to sum up everything <laughs> about the evening. Um, well, I might, I might come back, actually, just to thinking about um, this idea of, of um, rights and how um, scientific ideas affect the rights that individuals um, have, which is something that I think has come up um, in the discussions. Um, one of the big changes that's happened recently, actually, is, uh, in Britain is the uh, 2014 Children and Families Act, which has actually really changed the way in which um, autistic individuals have been dealt with within social and, and education and welfare systems. Um, so whereas previously autism has always been considered within an educational context or primarily within an educational context, it's now being considered within social and healthcare um, contexts in, 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 in a very different way than it has been before. So I think um, that's, that's one of the big um, shifts that's occurred and it's one of the big shifts um, in, in terms of how we think about these ideas um, in relation to yeah, rights and scientific ideas and who, gets, who should define what. <laughs> Thank you. John? Um, okay, well, if I end with a very um, broad statement, I think what I, what I would take away from this kind of discussion is the importance of being um, very critical and thoughtful about naive ideas about scientific truth. I'm a huge admirer of science. I think that it comes up with all kinds of very illuminating things about the world. But scientists and science are part of human society. And when we have a, a question like this, which people care so much about and have so many different kinds of investments in, um, there is no pure truth. There is um, truth qualified by um, all kinds of contexts aimed at producing all kinds of disputed goals and so on. And I think the, the, the idea that we're just able to say this is how things are um, uh, you know, in, from, from what people sometimes call, you know, the, the, the view from nowhere is a very um, misleading and dangerous way of thinking about this kind of scientific truth. Same sentence. Um, so my sentence has got two halves. Um, <laughs> it's really smuggling in two, two sentences. Um, but uh, I think one is that um, over the period of the discussion in the evening, we, we have at times lapsed into this idea that it's something is either genetic or environmental, and this whole nature-nurture thing, as if they're mutually exclusive. And we all hope that we've gone beyond that to recognize that uh, genes and environment always interact, whether we're talking about mathematical ability or talking about autism or anything else. Uh, but it's just to kind of put in a plea not to keep going backwards to this old uh, binary polarity, uh, which, um, you know, we, we do need to try and move on from that. The second part of my sentence is about diagnosis, because um, 
you know, we talk about an autism spectrum and we talk about autistic traits being on a spectrum, but we still do need in medicine to make a categorical distinction about when somebody needs a diagnosis. So with your son, he might need a diagnosis because he's suffering. And diagnosis in medicine is reserved for people who are suffering. So if you've got lots of autistic traits, but you're content, you're managing, uh, you've got the kind of environment that fits your personality, your, 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 your style of thinking you may not need a diagnosis. Uh, but if you are having real difficulties and it's causing depression and even suicidal thoughts or attempts, clearly you need a diagnosis. We shouldn't have to wait till things get that, that bad. We should be able to see the suffering at milder levels. But medicine and clinical psychology, psychiatry, you know, steps in to put that label on, whether it's autism or any other label, as a passport to services, that's what the label is for. We can't give it out to the whole population, so we reserve it for people who need um, the, the investment that we put into the health service. Thank you. Uh, I get to have the last sentence or two. So um, I have to say uh, I was uh, very happy to see... Uh, one thing that we note that historical accounts of autism have primarily focused on the disability or the deficiencies, uh, as, as Bonnie had pointed out, and uh, this event is really focusing on the ability or the special talents uh, of autism, and and it's focusing on these talents and the overlap with scientific uh, aptitude, so to say, is. Uh, and it's not doing it, it. It's doing it in a very nuanced way, not in a stylized uh, Hollywood way like uh, Rain Man. So that's very crucial. That either we, we don't kind of club it to a complete medical disability uh, uh, with, within the disability section, or at the other end being the, the Rain Man and special savants. That we have a nuanced understanding of um, of this overlap of these continuous traits, and hopefully we have discussed quite a lot of the issues on on definition and uh, and how should we talk and think about these issues on the overlap of autism and science, um, and hopefully you have enjoyed the evening. And thank you. <laughs>